There aren't enough jobs out there that pay a decent wage. And the result is that we have a lot of people that are working and are working hard, but they're just not able to get ahead because of the nature of work in the United States. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. When President Ronald Reagan conjured the image of the so-called welfare queen in the 1980s, he created one of the most enduring and damaging myths about people living in poverty. The myth depicted those in poverty as people of color, women, urban, and lazy. In fact, more than half of Americans will live part of their life below the poverty line at some point in their lives. Most Americans in poverty are white and do not live in cities. This is one of the many myths about poverty that are debunked by Mark Rank in his new book, Poorly Understood, What America Gets Wrong About Poverty. Rank is a professor of social welfare at Washington University in St. Louis. He's considered one of the foremost experts on issues of poverty and social inequality. I began by asking Professor Rank who, in fact, are the poor. Well, I think that's a that's a great place to start. I mean, the the image that we often have is that the poor are somebody else, uh, that it's an issue of them, not an issue of us. And really, one of the main points uh, in this book is the idea that actually, to a large extent, poverty affects us all, either directly or indirectly. So one of the questions I w- I've been interested in for a long period of time was this question that you started with, which is, you know, what is what is the actual risk of poverty for a typical American? And it turns out that between the ages of 20 and 75, 60% of Americans will experience at least one year below the official poverty line, and three quarters of Americans will experience either poverty or near poverty. And so really, you know, who are the poor? It's really most of us. Can you remind us, uh, what is the poverty line? Yeah, so um, the way that uh, we define poverty in the United States is that we draw a line in terms of annual income, and we say if you're below that line, you're in poverty. If you're above the line, you're not in poverty. And for this year, um, the poverty line for a family of three was around $22,000. So that's, you know, and it's adjusted for household size, but that's kind of the the point at which if folks fall below that line, they're considered in poverty. Um, The other thing that I mentioned here is that, well, first, this is a very conservative measure and you try to figure out, you know, trying to survive on $22,000 a year for a family of three is very, very difficult. But it turns out that almost half, 45% of the poor in this country fall below half the poverty line. So instead of trying to survive on $22,000 a year, try surviving on uh, uh, $11,000 of income per year. Hmm. Um, You know, perhaps the defining American ethos is in the words of the Horatio Alger Association, quote, the simple but powerful belief that hard work, honesty, and determination can conquer all obstacles, close quote. You say this is a myth. Why? Yeah, so... um, I actually had a book that came out last year that focused on this whole idea of rugged individualism. And I think the way, you know, the the way that we often think about um, poverty is, and why poverty exists, is that we view it as an individual failing, that folks just aren't, you know, working hard enough, um, they're not motivated enough, and, and so on and so forth. 
And uh, what, I, what we find is that the way to think about this is that hard work should be thought of as a necessary condition for getting ahead, but not a sufficient condition. And so in other words, uh, you know, it's hard to imagine getting ahead in life and doing well without putting in some kind of effort. But just because you put in some effort doesn't mean that you're going to get ahead. And so I've talked to many, you know, dozens, hundreds of people that are working really, really hard, but they're not getting ahead. And the reason they're not getting ahead is because of some of the things we talk about in the book that are structural rather than individual. And, and talk about what are some of the structural obstacles? Why is it a myth that just because you work hard, you don't get ahead? Yeah, so here's, here's a really good way to think about that. In the United States today, about 40% of all jobs are considered low paying. That is less than $16 an hour. Now think about that. That's almost half of all jobs in the United States are low paying jobs. So you can be working at one or two of these jobs and still find yourself in poverty. That's a structural failing, not an individual failing. There aren't enough jobs out there that pay a decent wage. And the result is that we have a lot of people that are working and are working hard, but they're just not able to get ahead because of the nature of work in the United States. <laughs> and, I, and, and I would also point out that you know this idea of low-wage work has actually, over the last 50 years in the United States, um, we've been producing more and more low-wage jobs, more and more jobs that don't have benefits attached to them, um, and more and more jobs that are part-time. So, uh, so you know, we, we've, we've uh, not done a very good job in terms of creating um, good-paying jobs. We've been producing a lot of low-paying jobs over, over the last 40 or 50 years. So even the effort now to get a $15 minimum wage, by the definition you're describing, would still not clear the bar for being uh, more than low-wage work. Well, it would, it, would at least, it would at least get some folks up to a more reasonable level. So as, as you know, the, the minimum wage, the federal minimum wage in the United States is still $7.25 an hour. And, you know, there, there's no way that you can sort of make it on that. Um, now, a number of states have raised their minimum wage, but, you know, at least getting, some, getting it up to $15 an hour is a very good start. Um, and we can think about other things as well that would help folks in, the, in, that, in those circumstances. So you're describing a reality where getting ahead is really hard, where most people who are in poverty work, and yet there's probably no, nothing or no one more vilified in America than those receiving public assistance. So can you just uh, tackle one of the enduring myths, and that is the one of the welfare queen, which seems to capture everything that we're supposed to hate? Yeah, yeah, yeah no, that's right. And, and the, uh, you know, there's an interesting book that was written, uh, I think it came out last year or the year before, um, that focused on this notorious example that Ronald Reagan gave of this welfare queen, a woman in Chicago that, you know, uh, was receiving, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars and, and, and all of this kind of stuff. And that, that's, that's this sort of image of, you know, that people are living the good life on welfare and, um, 
that, you know, they're basically are really scamming and taking advantage of the system. It turns out that that is completely false. I mean, of course, there are always a few people, you know, in any kind of program that may be abusing the program. But for 99% of people receiving the program, um, they are not abusing it by any means. And one of the one of the very early pieces of research that I did um, kind of focused on this myth that, oh, women on welfare have more kids to get more money from welfare. And, um, you know, that that is certainly something that drove welfare reform a number of years ago. Well, it turns out that the birth rates for women on welfare is actually lower than women in the general population. And I asked women on welfare, you know, what about this idea of having another child to get some extra money from welfare? And every single person said to me, you have to be crazy to think that it's worth having another child for an extra $50 a month. It, it, that, that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any economic sense. So, you know, this myth that people are living the good life and are buying lobster and driving Cadillacs, it's just, it's completely, you know, a total, uh, a total falsehood. Well, and as I recall, the welfare queen described by Ronald Reagan was an African-American woman. So yeah. there was another level of yeah. othering going on that, uh, you know, giving this a racial tinge how much is that a part of the anti-welfare mentality? Absolutely, absolutely. And, um, you know, I don't think you can talk about uh, welfare or poverty in the United States without talking about the issue of race. And one of the things that um, we argue in this book is that that issue of race has really been used to divide poor whites and poor blacks from seeing their common interests. And this has been used by politicians, particularly Southern politicians for decades and decades. And I've got a, we've got a quote here um, that I think is really telling on this in the book. This is from President Lyndon Johnson in 1960 before he was president. Um, and he was talking to an aide and this is what he said. He says, I'll tell you what's at the bottom of it. If you can convince the lowest white man that he's better than the best colored man, he won't notice you picking his pocket. Hell, give him somebody to look down on and he'll empty his pockets for you. And that's exactly what has happened in this country. That's exactly what Trump tied into in terms of sort of othering, you know, groups. Um, and, uh, and so what we really need to do is we need to think about poverty, again, not as an issue of them, but poverty as an issue of us. But Trump has really shown how politically potent it is to tap into kind of the racist dimension of, uh, you know, who is poor and who isn't. And of course, that quote you said really yeah. captures it. So how is it that uh, Republican politicians specifically have managed to pit a poor, typically Southern whites or poor whites against poor everyone else, but notably uh, BIPOC people? Yeah, um, I think it's, uh, you know, it's because we, we do have a long history in this country of a racial divide. Um, we have a long history in this country of antipathy towards 
the government and assistance from the government, the idea that you do it on your own, you don't turn to others for any kind of assistance. And so I think kind of combining those those things have allowed politicians, particularly Republicans, to play this card, um, to play the, the welfare card and the race card. And, you know, as as we noted, the sort of at the end of the book, we ask this question of, you know, we go through all these myths and 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 you know, and present research and evidence to show that none of these hold any water. But then we get to the end of the book and we say, well, how come they continue that? Which is kind of the question you're asking. It's like, how yeah. come this stuff continues? And um, uh, one of my co-authors is a psychologist and she talks about some kind of psychological reasons for why these myths and stereotypes continue. And, and then I talk about some of sociological reasons. And one of the, the factors is to say, who is benefiting from these myths? Who benefits from the perpetuation of these myths? And one of the groups that really comes to mind, as we've been talking about, are politicians. And so Ronald Reagan, Bill Clinton, Donald Trump, you know, all these folks have used this, this uh, sort of this card um, to score political points amongst their constituents. So, uh, and, and, and we can think about other groups that have, that have benefited from these, um, from these myths as well. But uh, it's a, you know, it's, it's, it, it really gets to kind of the core of, you know, why are these things perpetuated? Why do they continue, even though the evidence shows that there's no factual basis for this? Ronald Reagan famously said that the government declared war on poverty and poverty won. Is that true? No. So, you know, we uh, we had we devote a chapter on the myth that uh, just this very thing that, you know, uh, there's really not much government can do to address poverty. Um, this kind of goes back to the biblical phrase, you know, you'll have the poor with you always. Well, it turns out that governments can do a lot to reduce poverty. So take the war on poverty. Ronald Reagan, as you said, was famous for saying we fought a war on poverty and poverty won. In 1959, the poverty rate in the United States was 22%. In 1973, it had fallen to 11%. Poverty was cut in half. That's a dramatic decrease. And there were two main reasons for that. One, the economy was doing really well. And the other was we started the war on poverty, which was addressing uh, poverty and, and reducing the extent of poverty. So there you have an example of government being proactive and really reducing poverty. Did, did we eliminate poverty? No, but we cut it in half. And I'll give you one more example of government uh, really having an effect on reducing poverty. So let's go back again to 1959. In 1959, the age group that had the highest rate of poverty was the elderly. Their rate of poverty was about 35%. Today, the rate of poverty for the elderly is around 9%. And there's only one reason, or there's two reasons for that. One, Social Security, and two, Medicare. Those programs have had a dramatic effect on reducing poverty amongst the elderly. So if those programs were not around today, instead of a poverty rate of 9%, the poverty rate for the elderly would be about 40%. So these are examples that government can have a tremendous effect on reducing the extent of poverty. What about the non-elderly population? What have been some of the single most powerful anti and successful anti-poverty initiatives that we've taken in the past? Well, um, you know, we actually, the United States 
has not done a very good job in terms of its safety net. And that's one of the reasons why when we, when we compare the United States to other countries, we tend to have much higher rates of poverty. But we have had some programs that have had um, pretty significant effects. Um, one would certainly be the food stamp program, which reaches a lot of people, um, now known as the SNAP program. Um, that's a program that has had a, a pretty strong effect on reducing some of the nutritional and, and food um, needs uh, that, that folks have been facing. Um, the other program that a lot of people might not be aware of, but it's actually the largest kind of cash um, anti-poverty program is what's known as the earned income tax credit. And that's a program designed for low income workers. So at the end of the year, they get a tax refund if their income falls below a certain level. And that program has actually um, been pretty effective in raising people uh, uh, and, and getting some folks out of poverty. So I think those would be two examples of programs that have been pretty effective. The one that's right now on the radar screen that passed in the um, pandemic relief um, package that President Biden um, um, put forward is uh, a version of a child allowance. And this is an idea that has been around in European countries for decades. But the idea is if you have a child, we're going to provide you with a monthly stipend to help in raising that child. That can have a dramatic effect. And that will go, that will start in July of this year and will go for a year on a trial basis. Um, and any family with a child uh, below, uh, the family below, I think it's a couple hundred thousand dollars, will receive three or $400 a month. And that could be very, very dramatic in terms of reducing poverty. They're talking about that child allowance, cutting child poverty in half. Mm -hmm. Does that uh, make, sense to you based on what you've seen with this elsewhere? I think it does. I mean, it's a very, um, it's a very straightforward way of dealing with poverty. If poverty is a lack of income, then getting income into the hands of families is a very, very straightforward way of doing it. The concern with that is, and this is the, this a child allowance is really a subset of the larger idea of a universal basic income, which is just you know, everybody as a right of being a citizen is going to get a certain amount of income, you know, on a monthly basis. Um, the concern with that that conservatives have is that it may create work disincentives and people might not work as hard as, as, they, as they might. But interestingly, some research has come in from a couple of different places, one from Stockton, California, that showed that actually they did a, a pilot program on a, a universal basic income idea and they found that employment was actually higher for the people that were getting the UBI than people that weren't. And so, um, so I think it's a very, I think it's an idea that's actually pretty radical for the United States. But I think we're in a period of time here where we're actually could do some some policy that's very um, progressive and that could really have an effect on reducing poverty and to some extent income inequality. Were you surprised that this idea of a child allowance came from Senator Mitt Romney? Yeah, I mean, that, that's, the, that's the thing that's really interesting about it, is that both President Biden and Senator Romney, in fact, Senator Romney's um, proposal was a bit more generous than President Biden's. But yes, um, although, you know, interestingly, this idea goes back really hundreds of years. So Thomas Paine in 1776 proposed a universal basic income. Uh, Milton Friedman proposed this idea in the early 70s. President Nixon actually 
had a plan and it passed one, one branch of uh, one house of Congress um, that was a universal basic income. So this is actually an idea that in a weird way kind of appeals to both conservatives and liberals. Conservatives like it because it's just very straightforward, um, you know, not a government bureaucracy and this kind of thing. And liberals like it because it's, it's addressing some of these income inequalities that we have. How does poverty affect everyone else who's not poor? Why is this something that people should care about if they think it doesn't touch their daily life? Yeah, and so there's and there's a couple of ways to think about this question, but I will I'll talk about one here, and that is um, this idea of what is the economic impact of having such high rates of poverty to the country as a whole. So a couple years ago, I and a graduate student here at Washington University, we did a, uh, an analysis of how much does childhood poverty cost the United States on an annual basis. So we know that childhood poverty is associated with higher um, healthcare costs. It's associated with higher criminal justice costs. And it's associated with less economic productivity as children become adults, they're not as economically productive if they grew up in poverty. So we use the latest evidence to, to estimate all those costs and we, and we tried to be quite conservative in terms of this, this uh, analysis. And we came up with uh, an annual number that childhood poverty in the United States cost the United States approximately $1 trillion a year. And to put that into perspective, in 2015, that was about 28% of the entire federal budget. So the question is not, are we paying or not paying for poverty? The question is, how are we paying for poverty? And we're paying for it on the back end of the problem rather than on the front end of the problem. And whenever you pay for something on the back end, it's always a lot more expensive. So the argument here is not only is reducing childhood poverty the morally right thing to do in a country with the resources that the United States has, but it's also economically the smart thing to do. It's smart economic policy to invest in our human resources, in our human capital, in our children. So I think, you know, some for so folks that say, well, this doesn't really, you know, I don't really have to worry about it. It doesn't really cost me anything. It certainly does cost you things in terms of higher health care costs, uh, in terms of higher um, criminal justice and incarceration costs. Those are all really, really expensive things to do. If you're born poor in America, you're more likely to live and die poor than almost any other developed country in the world. Um, why is that? So um, one of the things that we look at uh, in um, a section on inequality is this question of um, mobility. How much mobility is there in the United States? And, you know, there's, there's this myth of people you know, as long as they work hard, they can rise from rags to riches. But it turns out that there's less mobility in the United States, uh, as you pointed out, than in other countries. And the idea that each generation does economically better than the past generation is becoming harder and harder to achieve. Now, why is that? I think it's because one of the reasons is because inequality has just been getting so much wider. If, if you imagine inequality as a distribution and, and a ladder with rungs on the ladder, 
the rungs on that ladder are getting further apart, making it harder for people to climb that ladder. And so, um, you know, what we've seen, you know, I talked about over the last 40 or 50 years, we've been producing more and more low wage jobs. Well, also over the last 40 or 50 years, almost all of the economic gains have gone to the top 20% of the income distribution, in particular, the top 10, 5 and 1%. All of the gains have been concentrated there. So this is one of the reasons why it's becoming harder for people to get out and to move forward uh, economically because of these things. Are you hopeful that as we recover from the coronavirus pandemic um, and with the huge social programs that are now on the table, um, that this could be a transformative moment in how we deal with poverty? I, th I am guardedly optimistic, yes. I think we do have a window of time here that's open in which we can really do some really progressive, proactive things to reduce poverty. You know, one of the, I think one of the bright sides of this pandemic, one of the silver linings, is it reveals the fact that, you know, this, this is a structural problem. This doesn't have anything to do with, you know, people's motivation or not working hard enough. This is a a collapse on us on a very systematic level. And therefore, we need some really big policies. And I think that's what Joe Biden is is doing is he's thinking very big, you know, he's thinking FDR, or LBJ, that kind of thing. Um, and and if we look back at FDR, and we look back at LBJ, those programs had a really significant effect on improving people's lives. Um, and, and I think that, that Joe Biden is kind of coming out of that, out of that framework. And so, yes, I am, uh, I am hopeful, you know, that in the next few years, we're going to see some pretty progressive things uh, in terms of addressing both poverty and inequality. Well, Mark Rank, I want to thank you for joining us this week on the Vermont Conversation. Yeah, this was great, David. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Mark Rank is a professor of social welfare at Washington University in St. Louis and is the author of the new book, Poorly Understood. That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. You can hear this in all shows at vtdigger.org slash Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>